Well, good morning. And good morning to Elma and St. John's and everybody worshiping with us online. My name is Holly Knudsen. And I would also like to say just a special hello to St. John's campus, as this is my first time giving a message at your location. So thank you so much for having me. And on top of that, I wanted to introduce my husband. Well, kind of introduce him. It was a picture. Um, this is me and my husband, Mark, on our wedding day. I married up. I know. Um, you might recognize Mark, too. He is also on staff as the college and young adult director of Unite. And I met Mark um, in November 2003, shortly after I moved from Mount Pleasant, Michigan to San Diego, California, where I went to school. And um, we got married in July of two, 2006. And it was such a whirlwind of adventure and change for me in such a short period of my time, time in my life. Because three years before my wedding, our wedding, I was just graduating high school from Chippewa Hills. New Chippewa Hills people over here? No. Oh. So from Chippewa Hills. And... Um, uh, just seeing the world as my canvas. And now here I was in San Diego, like creating roots for my future and mar marrying the most wonderful man. And everything about our life was picture perfect. And you know what I mean by picture perfect, right? Like Facebook or Instagram perfect. Where every, everything on the outside looks great and then people looking at us would be like, wow, they have it all together but things weren't what they seemed. Life was hard. Marriage was harder. We were both working through expectations that we placed on ourselves and we placed on each other and expectations that we placed on what we thought our marriage should look like. And we were both working through struggles from our past. Mark and I like to say that we didn't have marriage problems. We just had problems we brought into our marriage. <laughs> And on top of that, I was working tirelessly to finish up my degree, and he was in a job that he called the golden handcuffs. Paid him too good, but then he didn't want to leave. He felt trapped. So there was, like, nothing really major in our life in the beginning. It was just life. And the slow burden and the, uh, the burden and creep, the creep of that burden happened so subtly and so normally that our alarms of caution never really went off. And so we remained in this pattern of disconnectedness and disappointment. Both of us not really loving each other the way that we promised we would when we took our vows. And both of us not holding up to our end of the deal of the marriage covenant. And then it came to a point where it was really bad. And at that time, we decided to see a Christian counselor. And I just recommend every single couple do that. Because it was during this time that we were able to really hear from the Lord through help from her. And we were really able to have clarity on what he was calling us to. And God was calling us to go against the grain in every area of our life. He was calling us to move back to Michigan, to have a fresh start. He was calling to each of us to forgiveness of every offense. And he was calling us to love one another with a love that was extremely hard to give away and difficult to receive, an unconditional love, a love that 
required true risk without the promise of reward. And a love that said, I'm going to keep on loving you no matter what. Well, welcome to week eight of Against the Grain. We've been taking a magnifying glass to the life and ministry of Jesus and, and trying to put ourselves in the shoes of those who walked with him to imagine what it would have been like to see and experience and live life during that time when Jesus walked the earth. And by doing that, it has shown us that we aren't that different than the people of that time. How they responded to Jesus' life against their grain and their call to do the same is still a testimony that is speaking to us. And today we're taking a magnifying lens right into the heart of the new covenant, a contract of unconditional love. And one common thread that links this message with the rest of the messages in the series is that Jesus has come to do a new thing. He lived against the grain and he calls us to live against the grain too. Even when we don't want to and even when it feels impossible. We pick up our deep dive lens into the life of Jesus at the Passover celebration from last week. And we're in Jerusalem, and Passover is a Jewish holiday that celebrated God's rescue of his people out of slavery in Egypt. And in order to understand the significance of the new covenant, we have to understand the significance of the old and the Passover celebration that brought it all to a head. So we're going to travel back in the Bible to that historic event called the Passover. And so at this time, Pharaoh is the ruler of Egypt, and he has all of God's people captive as slaves. And so God calls on Moses to go before Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Moses does that, and Pharaoh refuses. And so in response to Pharaoh's refusal and as a way for God to try to encourage Pharaoh to change his mind, God ushers in plague after plague after plague. But Pharaoh won't budge. Actually, he just drives the slaves harder. And it was a full-blown-out war between God and Pharaoh, which led God to his final showdown moment, the 10th plague. And in Exodus 11:1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. And then the rest of uh, chapter 11 in Exodus, God lays out these clear instructions on how the final plague is about to roll out and what the Israelites must do to prepare for it. And in in summary, this is what God says to his people. You need to take a year-old male lamb without any defect. And at twilight on the 14th day, you're going to slaughter that lamb. And then you're going to take the blood from that lamb and you're going to paint the blood over the doorposts. And that evening, in haste, you're going to eat the meat from that lamb and make bread with un- without yeast. And you're going to eat that and leave nothing till morning. And then that evening, I'm going to pass through Egypt and strike down the firstborn and bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. And the blood on your doorpost will be assigned to me, and I will pass over you, and no destructive plague will touch you. Then after God lays out these very clear and very alarming instructions on how to prepare for the final plague. And before the first domino in the chain of events begin, God does something very peculiar. God instructs his people on how to party. I'm not even joking. Like, 
We are in the final showdown moment between God and Pharaoh, and he takes a moment and stops, and he instructs his people on how to celebrate this epic moment, which will be known as Passover for generations to come. He tells Moses how to celebrate it. He tells Moses the day and the month to begin celebrating it. He tells Moses how long the celebration should last. He tells Moses what they should make and how they should prepare to eat it. He even gives Moses instructions on holding sacred assemblies throughout the whole celebration. And then in Exodus 12, 14, God says this, this is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And then later in that same chapter, God goes on and he says, when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. And then after God gives these instructions, these party instructions, God's people begin to ready their homes and their doorposts and their exit in anticipation of everything that God says to come. And then that evening at midnight, God passes through Egypt and he passes over the homes marked with the blood of the lamb, saving his people, which set into motion all of the events that led them out of slavery through the Red Sea and into their promised land. I mean, the Passover celebration is clearly very significant to God. Because think about it. God is about to do something huge, epic. This is the final showdown. And he stops and takes a minute to instruct his people on how to celebrate this for years to come. The timing of God's instructions is so peculiar that that alone should let you know that this is kind of a big deal. Because why wouldn't God give these instructions to his people after they had gone through it, after they were out of slavery and through the Red Sea? And you know, things have calmed down a little bit. And then God could say, hey, look what I just brought you through. Now, do that in remembrance of me. But instead, he gives them these instructions before they even even gone through it and before they fully even understand. Okay, noted, God. Passover is a big deal. Okay, so now, fast forward from that moment, about 1,400 years later, and God's people, the Jews, have obeyed exactly what God has commanded. And every year for the past 1,400 years, the Jewish people have observed the Passover celebration. And now, 1,400 years later, Jesus is celebrating the Passover too. That is such a cool connecting piece between the Old Testament and the New Testament, isn't it? And for the Jews, the Passover became one of the most loved and anticipated celebrations of every year as it commemorated their ancestors' freedom, uh, journey into freedom. And this time in history, though, was, it was a little bittersweet because although the Jews were free, Israel was now occupied under Rome. And so now the Jews are living under strict Roman official rules and government. And so here they are celebrating God's liberty and God's liberating activity of the past, but at the same time wondering if God hears their current prayers and will answer again. But still, Passover is a big deal, and Jerusalem is the place to be. And so for the 1400th time, God's people begin to prepare for the Passover, and Jesus is included in that.
In Luke 22, 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And so they did. And that evening, Jesus and his disciples ate that Passover meal like any other Passover meal that they had ever had before over the course of their life. Until the hour came when Jesus did something completely new. The introduction of the new covenant. After supper, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Wait, what? Imagine what the disciples must have been thinking. Jesus, did you just say that this bread is your body? Jesus, don't you know that we eat this unleavened bread in remembrance of the bread that was prepared on the eve of our people's freedom? But Jesus isn't done. He goes on. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Hold on a minute, Jesus. Did you just say that this is your blood? That this cup is your blood? Jesus, don't you know that we drink this cup in remembrance of the redemption of our people out of slavery? And we have been doing this for 1,400 years. And did you just say that this is your blood of the covenant? Jesus, don't you know that we are already in a covenant with God and it has already been signed and sealed with blood? Which was true, actually. God made a covenant with his people, which we know as the Old Covenant, that dated all the way back to Abraham and was formally laid out at the base of Mount Sinai right after God delivered the Israelites out of slavery. And the terms within that 1,400-year-old covenant were the terms of the Ten Commandments, the statutes of tithing and eating clean meats, and the hundreds of laws pertaining to civil rules within the nation. And at that time, God said to his people, and here's the foundation of the Old Covenant, God said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. It was an if you do this, then I'll do that kind of covenant. A two-party contract. If you keep my laws, then you'll be my people. And after God's people heard the basic terms of the law spelled out, it was their term to express agreement to those terms, and they did. And they said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And after the Israelites agreed to that covenant, The covenant was then signed and sealed with blood. Today we put our signatures in ink on a contract when we agree to the the terms of the contract. But back then, the ink of the covenant, so to speak, was animal blood. And so Moses took the blood, sprinkled sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Back then, when a deal was made, an animal was sacrificed. And that's where that term, let's cut a deal, came from. And at that deal, 
the consequences that were laid out between the two parties were, if I break this deal, let it be done to me, which was done to this animal, if I don't hold up to my end of the deal. And so at that covenant, that is for this reason why when, people's, when God's people sinned and disobeyed, that they had an animal step in as their substitute and was sacrificed on an altar to clear them of their sins so that they could continue to be in the presence of God again and again and again. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So imagine the confusion of the disciples at this supper. When Jesus says the cup is his blood of the covenant. Imagine their awe and astonishment when Jesus says that his body is the bread. Jesus, why are you touching this? What are you doing? Like, this is our history. This is our heritage. This is who we are. This is a part of our redemption story and what sets us apart as God's chosen people. Jesus, you can't touch this. I mean, you've already ruffled enough feathers and there's no way that God's people are going to jump on board with this one. What Jesus was doing in this moment was so radical. Honestly, it set itself up to be one of his most offensive moments of his entire ministry. Because for 1,400 years, God's people were celebrating the Passover, doing exactly what God had commanded them to do in remembrance of his deliverance out of slavery. And now Jesus shows up and he says, when you drink this cup and eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. I mean, the closest thing I can compare this to is an ima imagine that I'm going out to dinner with a group of you on the 4th of July, and after dinner, I look around the table and I say, listen, guys, I know that for hundreds of years that we've been, you know, us, us Americans, we've been celebrating the 4th of July because it commemorates the Declaration of Independence, which declared our freedom from Great Britain. But from now on, when you celebrate the 4th of July, I want you to celebrate it in remembrance of me. I mean, that's enough to make you stand up and walk right out the door. I mean, at a minimum, laugh like you're doing right now because it's ridiculous. But the disciples didn't stand up and walk out. Confused, maybe, but they didn't leave. And that alone should tell you that this man, Jesus, was not just an ordinary man. Because anyone at that moment would have gotten up and walked right out the door. And the only reason that those disciples wouldn't have gotten up and walked out is because there was already substantial evidence and eyewitness proof that this man, Jesus, was not just an ordinary prophet. And he was not another rabbi. But he was who he said he was, and he was God. And God himself was laying the groundwork for something completely new. I imagine the disciples felt like they had the rug pulled out from underneath them. Because for 1,400 years, they did, did things a certain way. And they thought about things a certain way. And now Jesus was rewriting the entire script. The new blood of the covenant thing? Like, Jesus, what is that? 
That definitely did not fit into their plans of how this whole Messiah thing was supposed to go down. I imagine they thought that Jesus had come at such a time as this to deliver them from Rome, similar to how Moses delivered the Israelites out of slavery. And I imagine they thought that Jesus' reign as king was going to be more earthly than heavenly. I bet they thought Jesus came to Jerusalem to do something for the nation, never realizing, in fact, that Jesus had come to Jerusalem to do something for you and me and the entire world. And I bet they definitely didn't have it on their radar that Jesus' purpose for coming and his mission had anything to do with the Old Covenant because in their eyes, that wasn't broken. They've been doing that for 1,400 years and that two-party contract between them and God, that had been working just fine. But now in this moment, the disciples are realizing that Jesus' entire purpose for coming was nothing like they thought it was. And it had everything to do with establishing a new covenant because God knew and Jesus knew that God's people were never capable of holding up their end of the deal on their own. And at this Last Supper, it was as if the curtain was being drawn back and Jesus was allowing the disciples to get a sneak peek into the true purpose and meaning as to why he came. Jesus came because he was the final destination that the Passover was always pointing to. Jesus was the fulfillment of the old covenant. And now what Jesus was saying at this Last Supper, it's as if he slid the deal across the table. And he said, I have a new deal for you. It's a contract of unconditional love. And here's what the deal says. God just loves you so much. You are his child. And all he wants is to have a close and intimate relationship with you. And guess what? Now you don't have to go through a high priest and you don't have to do that animal sacrifice system anymore because you have me, Jesus. And I am the pure and spotless lamb who will save you from your sins once and for all. And not from Rome like you're expecting, but from a slavery of sins for eternity. And not just for you, but for all mankind, Jews and Gentiles, believers and unbelievers. This will not be a Jewish thing anymore. This is for everyone. And there will be terms in this new covenant, but not nearly as many as there were before. And if you come back next week, you'll learn about what those terms of the new covenant are going to be. And what Jesus was saying in this moment as he slides the deal across the table is, do you want to sign your name on the dotted line of the new covenant? Because all you have to do to sign your name is accept me as your Lord and Savior. Accept me as the only way to access that relationship with your Father. Turn from your sins and repent and follow me for the rest of your life. And guess what? If you sign that dotted line today, then tomorrow on the cross, that contract, that covenant will be signed and sealed with my blood. The language of this contract must have been so foreign, foreign to the disciples. Jesus, this sounds like nothing's in it for you and everything's in it for me. 
Imagine how hard this must have been for the disciples to wrap their head around what Jesus was saying. They didn't even want Jesus to wash his feet, and now he's talking about being the sacrificial lamb to save their lives. I wonder if the disciples thought that maybe Jesus was talking in parables again or riddles, because if my friend was telling me they were going to die the next day, I feel like I'd try a little harder to keep them indoors. And what Jesus was laying out here was something completely new. It was a brand new radical love that no one had ever instituted before. Jesus is showing us how to love. And I'm dipping my toes a little bit into the next week's sermon. But this is what he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. This kind of love of the new covenant went against the grain to everything that made sense to the Jews, and honestly, that makes sense to us too. And this is where my husband and I found ourselves all oh, those years ago. We live in a world where it's always, if you do this, then I'm going to do that. If you don't hold up to your end of the deal, well, then I'm not going to hold up to my end of the deal. If you don't hold up to, to your end of the deal, then there's consequences to pay. Contracts that we're familiar with consist of keeping records and tabs and making sure that both ends of the deal are equal and fair. But what Jesus was calling us into was to hold on to the new covenant in a way that my husband and I never had before. To receive the gift of unconditional love from our Father and then to give it away to each other. We love to receive the unconditional gift of love. But giving it away takes you to a whole new level. And Jesus is calling you to give away what he so freely gives to you. So who is it that you are not loving with an unconditional love? You're like, wow, there's a lot of people. But who is it that God is tugging on your heartstrings about today? Is it your spouse? And I, I know some of you might be thinking like, Holly, you have no idea what I'm going through in my marriage. And you're right, I don't. But I know what I've been through in mine. And I know that a life and a marriage fully surrendered to Jesus Christ is a life and a marriage that he can fully redeem. And I believe there are marriages in here today that need to hear that, that Jesus Christ can fully redeem your marriage. Even if it seems impossible, even if it feels like you don't want to give it another shot. And what about your children? How are you expressing and giving love to them? Do they have to do certain things or achieve certain things in order for you to show them love? Or do you just love them because they're your kids? Or what about your parents? Some of you 
are holding on to such unforgiveness for your parents, for maybe even things that happened so many years ago, and God is calling you to let that go and to extend the love that he so freely gives to you. What about your boss or your coworkers or your friends or your ex or that person who has hurt you more than anyone else? What if you extend that love of unconditional love, but then it's not extended in return? It's a huge possibility. And that's a pain that Jesus knows better than anyone else. And honestly, I think it's a pain that only Jesus himself can heal. It would sure make it a lot easier if both parties in the relationship loved with this new covenant kind of love. But this kind of love is that even if you don't hold up to your end of the contract, I'm gonna love you anyways kind of love. It's radical. And it goes against the grain of everything we want to do. And I know firsthand that it will be the hardest love that you ever give away. I know that the enemy did not want me to say this today. Because what the enemy meant to destroy me is the same thing I'm now using to glorify our Father and to tell someone else that Jesus Christ can do it too. Mark and I surrendered everything to Jesus to fight for our marriage. We surrendered where we would live. We surrendered our careers and our finances, and we surrendered how we would love one another. And now looking back and being years away from it, and after a lot of counseling and a lot of compromise and a lot of fighting and forgiving and a lot of loving with this unconditional love, we can see how all of it was pointing us to Jesus. Just like the Passover and the Old Covenant were always pointing to Jesus too. And what do I mean by that when I say that these things were pointing to Jesus, pointing forward to him? Well, look at what happens with Jesus at the Last Supper. Immediately after he gives these odd instructions to his disciples about the bread and the wine, he takes a moment and instructs his disciples on how to party. And Jesus said, and when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. God's doing it again. Right before this huge, epic showdown moment between God and the enemy, God stops and has this moment with his disciples and instructs them on how they will to celebrate this moment, which we now call communion, for years to come. Just like he did with the Israelites before the rollout of the 10th plague. He's giving them instructions before they even go through it and understand fully what it means. And why does God keep doing this? Because even in this, like, why couldn't Jesus give them these instructions, you know, after he died and rose from the grave and lived with them for 40 more days? It would have made a whole lot more sense to the disciples to, to look back and be like, oh, I get it now. And this is just conjecture, but do you think the timing of these instructions are hinting at the fact that not only are these moments significant, but that these moments aren't just about looking back and remembering what God did, but it's also about looking forward with hope to redemption and to the new 
that Jesus is going to do someday. For the Passover, the strange timing of these instructions made it very clear that God wanted his people to take it very seriously. And I mean, you got to give it to the Jewish people because they kept that commandment for 1,400 years. And the Jewish people today are still celebrating Passover. But what they didn't realize is that it's not just about looking back and remembering. It's not just about remembering what God did and remembering what he pulled us through, which is good. But it's also about looking forward to the promised land. hidden at the heart of these instructions of the Passover was a clue, a message that Jesus was coming. God had a future plan in store from the very beginning. When he started to write his story on page one, he knew how he was going to finish it and Jesus was always going to be the hero in the end. And God's people didn't even see it coming, except there was one who did. And that's why... When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming over the hill to be baptized, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He saw it and he knew it. So I wonder if the old covenant was a shadow of the new pointing forward to the day when Jesus himself would be the final and ultimate uh, sacrifice for sin. What is the new covenant pointing to? What is the new covenant inviting you into? In Matthew 26, 27, it says, Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, and here's the sign pointing forward. I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The moment of celebration and reflection that we now call communion is about looking back and remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. But just like the Passover celebration, it's also about looking forward to the new and hidden within those odd instructions given by Jesus at the strangest hour was a clue of what's to come. The new covenant is a message of hope just like the old. And if we surrender our lives to Jesus, your life will continue to point forward to Jesus. It will continue to point forward to redemption. It will continue to point forward to the day when you and me and Jesus are all together again in our Father's kingdom, eating the bread and drinking the wine with him for the very first time. Church, will you be there with me in God's new kingdom? Have you signed your name on the dotted line of the new covenant? The new covenant of unconditional love the new covenant that promises that your debt is paid in full and signed and sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to sign your name on that covenant, you can do so. And all you have to do in this moment is say, Jesus, I'm ready. I'm ready to accept you as my Lord and Savior. I'm ready to accept you as my only way to access the Father. I'm ready to turn from my sins and repent from you. And I am ready to be a part of your family forever. And if you just made that prayer, praise God. Welcome to the family. If you have already signed your name on that contract, 
and you have already committed your life to Jesus Christ and have accepted him as your Lord and Savior, then you have accepted that free gift of unconditional love. And now, how will you extend that love out to whoever God is placing on your heart right now? That is what he is calling you to. The unconditional love that doesn't make sense, but it was instituted by Jesus Christ himself. During this last song of worship, we're going to take communion together. And if you are worshiping with us online, please take this time at home to grab your juice and your crackers. And while we worship together, would you just reflect, remembering what Jesus did for you on the cross, but also would you let go and would you look forward to the future with hope and joy to the day when Jesus does something new and to look forward to the day when we will all be together again, taking communion with our Father in heaven. And then after worship, we're gonna come back together and we're gonna take the elements as one body.